If you cut it, does it not bleed? Well, no. But it will heal. Yes, this week on Download This Show, skin, real human skin. They're attaching it to robots now. But why? Also, the controversial plan to use drones armed with tasers to stop US school shootings. And does Google really have a sentient artificial intelligence on their hands? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, Seamus Byrne, Head of Content at Byteside. Welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. And Manal Asharif, host of the Tech for Evil podcast. Tell me about Tech for Evil. What is, what is the podcast about? Oh, it's the intersection between human rights and technology. And that includes your privacy, cybersecurity, digital rights. We talk about it all. Our last episode was about technology as persuasive, computers as persuasive technology. Captology. Interesting. Yeah, there's been huge overlap there. And I'd definitely like to get your opinion on the drone stuff we're talking about later on in the program. But before we get there, um, what happens when a chatbot becomes sentient? Well, uh, if you're one particular employee of Google, you get put on suspension, sort of. Um, This is something that unfolded earlier this week. Seamus, what happened? Um, So, yeah, really fascinating that uh, this particular Google engineer, uh, Blake Lemoyne, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly, uh, but as I was saying before, who knows, maybe it's a pseudonym that he's invented. Uh, But, yeah, look, he has been working as part of a team that's working with a a tech called Lambda, which is one of their AI language models. I believe Lambda actually is for Language Model for Dialogue Applications. Yeah, they always make up these acronyms. Um, But it's essentially a chatbot, but a very, very, very very advanced chatbot. And through the process of having conversations with it, he started to become convinced that it is displaying a sentience. And after arguing about it internally, uh, he then decided to publish uh, one of his uh, long form conversations with Lambda and therefore has been suspended for releasing uh, proprietary information. And of course, his response to that is to say, all I've done is published a conversation I had with a colleague. And of course, the world's exploding with this whole idea that a Google engineer has been convinced by a chatbot that it is displaying sentience. What in the world do we do next? Uh, Well, we prepare for Skynet, obviously, which is what this whole show has been for, for the last 10 years, preparing you for Skynet. So, okay. So the, I was going to say the official line, that's very, um, that's very conspiratorial of me, but the idea is that he, he has been you know, suspended because of unveiling internal machinations or is it because he revealed that they'd create, created sentient artificial intelligence? <laughs> what's, what's the line here? <laughs> the suspension is because of, you know, releasing uh, private internal information essentially to the public, but his argument being that he is trying to bring to light the fact that that he feels that it's time to recognise that some of these AI technologies are starting to display sentience. Of course, there's plenty of experts who've looked at the transcript and have gone, well, this is yet another case of humans seeing what they want to see um, in what is a very advanced technology, but nonetheless is still a technology that just is really, really good at mashing words together and making it look like it knows how to be as close to human as possible. <laughs> now, this is a sort of a bigger question, not specifically about this story, but if a piece of technology can convince you that it is 
if, if the communication and the conversation can convince you that it's real, what's the actual difference between that and sentience view? Like, do you distinguish between the two personally? So it's interesting. You know, the Turing test? Yeah. Uh, the scientist Turing, the famous um, English scientist Turing, he had a Turing test and said, if you put a human behind a screen and he doesn't know or she doesn't know if she's talking to a technology or another human, if they don't tell the difference, they pass the Turing test. So it would seem in this case, at the very least, this chat won't pass that test. And that's really scary. That's the next level. For me, it's very scary when you don't know if you're talking to a human or a pot or a bot, mm. a robot. Uh, because this, when it comes to ethics, building, using AI and using that to judge humans or communicate with humans is very under-regulated. Mm. And as long as under-regulated, you can design things that goes out of control. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the first reaction lots of us have, Seamus, is is one of fear. I'm not going to lie. My first reaction was exactly the same as Manal's. Uh, is that the right reaction or should we be should we be approaching it differently, do you think? Oh, look, I, I love every time these kinds of conversations come up. I'm, I'm firmly in the camp that, of course, it is, it is just, uh, you know, a, a very, very clever computer and we've gotten to that point of being able to develop these kinds of things. But when it comes to that question of communicating, I think it's absolutely right that we have to be careful. And you might remember a few years ago when Google first demonstrated their ability to have your personal assistant like ring up a restaurant on your behalf to make a booking. Yeah, and I then it that. was able to have that conversation and to to go through that process. But then as the feedback came in, Google realised, yeah, we need to actually make sure that the assistant says something at the start to acknowledge that the person is talking to a computer and not to a real person because it is kind of unfair to try to to try to intentionally confuse somebody about what it is they're talking to. And I think those kinds of questions are really important. Yeah, deep fake is another important thing, using AI yeah. to trick you into that you're looking at a video of a, a real person without, without saying, labelling it, this is deep fake. Yeah, I guess that's the starting point, right? Your starting point is, is you've got to be honest about what it is you're, you're dealing with. When it comes, I mean, you must dig into this all the time, Manal, the, the ethics of, of, of AI technology is one of the biggest ethical challenges that's facing the future because it's coming at us fast. And as you say, it's not regulated. What are the other ethical considerations that, that stick out to you when we're talking about artificial intelligence? Are there other key issues that, that stand out in your head? So it's not only artificial intelligence. Maybe artificial intelligence is way more advanced when it comes to regu- to having ethics. There are ethic boards, AI ethic boards, but technology in general. Let's talk about surveillance, facial recognition. All these are still uh, there. Are not much uh, discussions around the ethics of using them. So my problem here is that technology advances faster than culture and regulators. And the first question in ethics you ask when you create something new is not why I'm creating it, it's should I create it? And that's the first question any technologist should ask themselves. Mm, it's funny because I feel like a lot of technologists, they actually start with 
can I create it? And so soon they get so far down that pathway that then that that moment of like, should this thing exist? In fact, I think there actually is another podcast called Should This Thing Exist, which deals with this kind of territory. And also using that technology because they never ask the question, will it be used for different purposes than what it was created for? That's the second question they ask. They don't ask that. Exactly. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. I guess this week, Manal Asharif, uh, host of the Tech for Evil podcast and Seamus Byrne, the head of content at Biteside. Mike Fennell is my name. And speaking of things where you are forced to ask the question, should this exist? Um, there is a company that develops tasers, body cameras and other law enforcement technologies. And in the last week, they paused work on a project to develop a and take a deep, sharp intake of breath here, a taser-equipped drone that was, at least the, the idea for it, Manal, was to, to kind of, the idea for it, at least Manal, was to tackle active shooters, which of course is a massive issue in, uh, in American schools around the place. Why did they pause it though? What was the thing stopping them? So it's interesting, if you look at the timeline of this whole saga, 2nd of June, the, the founder and CEO of Axon announced the plan to create this taser-equipped drone. 6th of June, 9 out of 13 board members of his AI ethics members, board members, they resign and they publish a letter. And that letter, they are going against creating this taser-equipped drone. And then they put it on hold. It's just like a couple of days ago, they had to put, put it on hold. Access Now, which is the largest digital rights uh, advocacy uh, in the world, they uh, were in Davos and they had a very um, strong statement against creating such uh, policing equipment. That's the next level of weaponizing technology against humans. I must confess there's a little part of me that isn't, it's a little bit surprised, Seamus, that this didn't already exist. Like, is that... Does that say something about me, that, that I thought this already existed, Seamus? No, no. Look, I, I think it does. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, we've got so many, we've got lethal drones galore out there in the world these days, of course, used by, uh, you know, military to, you know, do all those kinds of, you know, so-called targeted strikes and things like that. So the idea of a non-lethal attack drone of some kind kind of, it, it does. It, it hits you as something that probably already exists. And it does make me feel like that this particular uh, company, Axon, that, you know, as much as this uh, has been withdrawn at the moment and and it's a fascinating incident to think about, a, you know, having so much of an ethics board immediately just say we're drawing such a line here that we're not even just going to use our position as an ethics board to, you know, chastise and, and have the debate with the company but rather to say, well, we weren't even alerted to this coming up and therefore we are resigning. Um, but you do get the feeling that, well, if not them, someone else will probably run with this idea at some point. And, and yeah, it, it, it's definitely a weird one because you think, you know, tasers are often seen as non-lethal, but there's plenty of evidence over of the damage. years that they are actually highly lethal at different, yeah, for certain kinds of people. But, uh, yeah, that idea of creating that distancing ability to then go, wow, I could use a taser on somebody without even getting within close range. 
it's understandable an ethics board would have a lot of issues with that too. And it comes down to that idea you were saying earlier, Manal, which is like not just what a thing can do, what are they selling it for? Like obviously in the last couple of weeks we've had the idea of selling it as being a way of navigating school shootings. Like you can understand why that was the sort of the, the pitch, I guess, but it's really not just about what it was designed for, it's about what it will end up being used for, right? Yeah, Winston Churchill said once, never let crisis go to waste. Mm. And for me, it's very opportunistic to use the mass shooting and the grief of all those families to pass such very dangerous thing. I want to read uh, from the, because I went through the letter, the ethic boards, the people who resigned. I want to read two statements from them. One says, this type of surveillance undoubtedly will harm communities of colour and others who are over-policed and likely well beyond that. So that's that's another thing with AI, because AI, there are a lot of biases fit into these uh, uh, machines or mm. that use AI against people of colour. The other thing I'm going to read, quote, the taser-equipped drone also has no realistic chance of solving the mass shooting problem Axon now is prescribing it for, only distracting society from real solutions to a tragic problem. But I guess it, it does beg the question is like, okay, well, even if it did exist, would it solve the problem that they're claiming it could? So I was in Norway, in Oslo, exactly after the mass shooting that happened in 2010, 2011. And I was passing by the parliament and there were no guards, no police, no nothing. And I was asking, like, after a mass shooting, how come I thought the security will rise, will be having dogs and surveillance cameras. They said we had two options. The option of having high security uh, over the parliament and government public offices or having the open dialogue to ask what went wrong here in our society that we ended up with a mass shooting and hate and racism. And we chose the second one. And it's such a peaceful, it's been over 10 years since that shooting. And it's one of the most peaceful countries in the world is Norway. So you always ask that question, is it more policing and even using technology, weaponizing technology, or more of tackling the root issue of mass shooting in the U.S.? Yeah, I guess because there's no hope of tackling the root issue of gun violence in the US. Dialogues, open dialogues and gun control. I know people will hate me saying that. No, I just think you're more optimistic than I am, which is good. But it's generally better to be more optimistic than I am. Seamus, at what point do you exhaust examining different opportunities and, and where do you draw the line when you go, no, 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 we've gone far too down a path where something's too dangerous? How do you think that should be navigated? Um. Yeah, look, I think... There is a big question here, and yeah, you know, we've seen it a lot in uh, U.S. law enforcement spaces, which is actually the militarization of uh, law enforcement. You know, and, and so there's it comes up a lot, and this is one of those technologies that you feel like is in that realm where it 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 it's feels like such a military technology to have a, a drone that could potentially be sent in to take down some kind of assailant and. And, you know, it tied up in that whole school shootings conversation where, again, so much of the effort to distract from dealing with some of those root causes like you were just talking about, uh, it, it keeps talking about, you know, we need better door locks, we need more armed guards in school, you know, all those kinds of things. It's like it feels like a big distraction from the, the core of what's wrong. And so I think, yeah, this for me fits into that realm where it, where it feels like, you're starting to explore kinds of technological solutions that are ultimately just, you know, increasing 
the weaponization or the idea of, well, you know, they're going to install one of these in every hallway ready to dive down the second that somebody you know, wants to raise an alert. And, you know, I know the uh, the CEO called it saying it could be like having, you know, uh, the sprinkler systems that are, are there ready for a fire. And, you know, we, I just don't really like that idea of saying let's have, you know, a, a dozen taser drones ready to go in every school across the country just in case. It's like it's, it's a scary thing. It is indeed. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and completely changing the tone. Do you have too many wires in your life? Do you have that experience where you lift up your laptop and I'm doing it now and you look at it and go, ah, oh, that needs a USB. Oh, no, wait, it needs a USB-C. No, it needs another one. Do you have too many wires in your life? Well, Good news, potentially. Uh, the European Union have stepped in to make your life somewhat simpler, Seamus. What's happened? Yeah, so by 2024, they've mandated that all new devices uh, or smartphone-related, though there's a few different categories we can get into, but uh, a lot of those small everyday devices will have to be charged over USB-C, which is the, the kind of one of the probably the simplest little port that we see on many devices now, a lot of new laptops, a lot of new Android phones, certainly, uh, where we don't see it is on Apple's iPhone. Uh, and so that's the big topic of this discussion is that by 2024, uh, it's going to be mandated that if they still want to have a physical charger on their device, then they're going to have to move to USB-C. So right now, if you're plugging uh, a, uh, an iPhone, what you've got on one end at the moment is usually a USB-C or it plugs into, a, into either your laptop or it plugs into a power plug. And then on the other end, you've got a little lightning connector, which is, uh, <laughs> I'm watching Manal's, Manal's eyes just, just rolled so far back into your head. I think you might have sprained something. I get the sense that you're a fan of this new move. Tell me why. Yeah, it's funny that Apple, uh, if you haven't followed, so I followed this, uh, this drama been going on for years between the EU and Apple. Apple really lobbied hard to stop this law from coming into effect. And it's interesting because Apple, the wearables in Apple, create six, the, the, the money they make from their wearables only and, and all these accessories equal 60% the worth of the Fortune the 500. Can you believe that? Of course they will fight badly because Apple is a company that makes most of its profit from selling hardware, yeah. not selling the software. So that's their, their market. So uh, it's funny because the European Union said that it's uh, for people who use technology, convenience, and of course for environmental reasons, they pushed for that, and I agree with this. Apple, they said this, this is completely the opposite. And I read, I read uh, a statement they published, um, said, we remain concerned that strict regulation mandating just one type of connector stifle innovation rather than encouraging it, which in turn will harm consumers in Europe, I'm against the word consumer, by the way, and around the world. And this is their statement. They went against it. Of course, they will lose that market share of have, having to have a special cable. And, and I guess that cable too. Why? It always gets dirty and it doesn't connect. So it's not even easy to clean. So if you go to any repair shop, they tell you to the two main problems when repairing your iPhone after the broken screen is the connector of the charger. Yes. My first experience with USB-C was with Apple products. It was with the new laptops and they started charging and they actually took away, I'm literally lifting up my laptop as I do this, once upon a time, a magical, magical time, there was a range of different things I could plug into my laptop. I could plug in micro SDs and, you know, and, and USBs and then they took that all away and now I have to 
plug in a, a levity million dongle, Seamus. So I just find it funny, Seamus, that that like <laughs> Apple were the reason I had to migrate to USB C in the first place. Why is it so hard for them not to just have to migrate their rest of their handheld and wearable devices over to it? Like, is it that big a deal? I mean, the wire's not even that much bigger, Seamus. Yeah, well, look, I'm happy to take up the opposite side of this argument for you for, for the show because there's definitely, I think, a couple of issues that I see and I think the the biggest of them simply being that it kind of felt like the market was heading in this direction already. Now, definitely, I'm sure a lot of the Android manufacturers earlier on when there was a lot of different you know, proprietary connectors going on for a while there, you know, back around 2010 sort of era, um, that was around the time when the EU first started making noises saying, look, it's time to standardise these connectors. There were so many different options in the market. It was definitely a big issue, um, but everything has kind of been steadily converging on the USB-C cable point. And if we look back at the history of, again, you know, Apple's other devices, their iPads have been going to USB-C. Uh, they've been definitely sort of converging on that sort of space more and more themselves. But the original 30-pin connector that Apple used for a long time on the iPod, that's kind of where that first launched back So in- just, just to visualise this, if you're under the age of 35. Yeah. Um, I'm only saying this because Joey, the producer, very wide, under the very age of 35. Thick. I'm looking at him right now. He's like, what are you talking about? Um, so this was, it was, uh, it was white. It was thick. It was kind of about the size of like, you know, maybe two thumbs next to each other and you shoved it in the back and, um, and it was, it was chunky, wasn't it, Seamus? Yeah, chunky. It even had like that little sort of like little pins that actually clipped it in so that it didn't just fall out because it was so so big and wide and really quite tricky to work with. But that lasted about 10 years, 2003 to 2012. And 2012 was when they moved to Lightning. And that was actually kind of too early to be able to put the controller for a USB-C into, you know, a, a very slim mobile phone. So they've now had the Lightning connector for now 10 years, literally this year. So it kind of, in terms of their timelines and maintaining that single adapter type that they've you know, used, uh, they have, they're kind of in that window where they'd be ready to be shifting across to, you know, something else. And that something else is probably going to be USB-C. In the long term, my big issue is that I can see this idea that if it's mandated that USB-C is now the end-all be-all of adapter types and, you know, it can run a lot of different formats and things, but it does kind of mean that now the USB consortium controls the future of any kind of adaptive technology for a device into the future. And I don't think that's like a major innovation issue overall, but it does raise that question of what if somebody sort of says, hey, we've got a great new slimline design for a phone, but the USB-C cable is too small for that slimline design, but it still wants to have a physical adapter of some kind. Are they going to be allowed to even sell a product that says we need to use a new cable to suit this new form factor? But none of these things are going to be this way forever. I mean, by the time that USB-C kind of beds in as like the standard connector, I would say that let's let's say that it follows the same pattern as the other ones where there's like a 10-year window of it. I can see the end of that 10-year window basically vanishing into, into wireless charging for a lot of devices, Manal. Tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I was going to say the same. Apple, when they wanted to introduce their AirPods, they removed the whole jack for your uh, headphones. Mm. 
And they, made, they forced you to move to Bluetooth. Yeah. They forced everyone. Like, why? Why on earth do you do that? Pretty sure if they are forced to move to USB-C, they were just like, okay, we'll just remove the whole lightning uh, port. Uh, and we just, you have to, they force you to do the wireless. But one of the, one of the important things that we need to address here we have a whole episode about planned obsolescence of tech in Tech for Evil podcast. And we talked about why it's, it's a big issue for us that technology is creating so much e-waste. Why is so important to know? In the US, e-waste counts for only 2% of the total waste in the US, but it counts for 70% of the toxic waste. 70% comes from 2% of your waste. So the European Union and really concerned about that. Not only the, the money that being uh, wasted on buying 10 charges for all your devices, but also about the environmental impact of this waste. And this waste, where does it go from European Union? By the way, it's shipped to developing world that is uh, uh, put in their ground. It, it, um, it ruins their, their groundwater and their ground. Uh, all this e-waste that's been shipped to the, the... We're creating a big problem here. And, and Apple, it's, it's very sad that those big companies, they, uh, they don't see the impact of... It. We, we, we think it's a small thing, but it's really the impact on the environment is huge. Not only in our pockets, but on the environment. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And I cannot let this show end without talking about creepy robotic fingers with human skin. Seamus. <laughs> Look, I wasn't planning on sleeping tonight anyway, so give me the full nightmare. What exactly is this story about? All right. So we've got... Uh, <laughs> And look, in a very anime context, we've got Japanese scientists developing human skin tissue made from actual human skin cells ready to be applied to robots so that they can touch and feel, I guess, just like we can. But it has all the kind of uh, the water repellent aspects of what our real skin can do so that they can ultimately, I guess, put it all over robot faces and hands and make us start worrying about the overlords and what they're about to do. Yeah, but can I mention something? Uh, the creepy thing is not about it feels like human or it's water repellent. repellent. It heals itself. Yeah. So they use a surgical knife, they cut it, they put a, ba a collagen bandages on it, and after a week, it healed itself. Um, is there a sense of, like... Uh, my brain went to for people with a disability and people with amputations, but what is the actual argument, Seamus, they've put forward for what they would like to use it for? Is it just to put on robots? Yeah, it's funny that I think a lot of the research, like the way that this research has been presented is about sort of looking at the ways that it can, it can act just like human skin for sort of the robot to be able to be sort of skin covered in a certain way and have a lot of those sort of, you know, sensitivity aspects uh, of, you know, having a true skin-like coating. There's there's definitely a lot of this sort of research can keep focusing on that idea of how we make robots more human and there's a lot of those people who love to explore that space. But I think exactly as you're saying there with other applications that, that there's actually so many really powerful aspects of, you know, what they're referring to here is having like a circulatory system in a robot skin. And, you know, there's so many aspects of human skin that is actually incredibly useful and powerful 
beyond kind of what I guess traditional technology might do. And that's how, you know, how fine our sensitivity is, even our sort of temperature sensitivity through our skin. There's like actually so many aspects of what touch gives us. And a big part of that is the way that, you know, that our uh, sensory neurons and even things like, you know, having sweat and hair follicles and things kind of built in, that this gives us all these aspects of sensation that, could ultimately be harnessed if you get this particular element right and that's being able to create the you know the skin layer and so they really did talk about the way they've managed to combine both the the sort of the collagen layer as well as the skin cells to create the, that ideal robot skin. I love that this in this episode we've gone from a uh, a robot that was so convincing it convinced a Google engineer that it was sentient and, and then at the other end we've come out with, yes, but what if we wrapped it with skin and gave it a taser? Manal, how, would you, how do you think we should be approaching this, this future? How are we going to use them, not how we want to make them look and feel like humans? It's creepy. <laughs> it's creepy could also be another name for this show. And with that, we are out of time. Manal Asharif, the host of the Tech for Evil podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. And Seamus Byrne, the head of content at Byteside. Thank you again. Thank you. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.